Hi, this is Sandy Simpson from Apologetics Coordination Team. Thank you for choosing one of our podcasts, and I hope that you enjoy it and it's a help to you. All right. Good day to everybody. So glad that you're here today. So glad that we can fellowship together and encourage one another as the days grow darker. We're heading into the evil day. Actually, we're already there. And uh, the thing is, we need to stand strong. We need to stand in our faith and not let anything dissuade us. We need to continue to pray for people, continue to reach out to people, continue to witness to people, continue to try to dis- dis- uh, disciple people, uh, and, not, and not get our eyes off on other things. That's what the, the devil loves to do. He loves to get your eyes off of the Lord and onto the wind and the waves, and you start sinking. Well, the Lord needs us to stand. We need to stand in this rotten culture and world that we live in. We need to stand for something. Well, today we're moving on to 2 Corinthians 9. And I found a little story. It goes like this. According to a story in the uh, Grand Rapids Press, the owner of a small foreign car had begun to irritate his friends by bragging insistently about his gas mileage. So they decided on a way to get some humor out of his tireless boasting, as well as bring it to an end. Every day, one of them would sneak into the parking lot where the man kept his car and pour a few gallons of gas into the tank. Soon, the braggart was recording absolutely phenomenal mileage. (laughs) He was boasting of getting as much as 90 miles per gallon. (laughs) And the pranksters took secret delight in his exasperation as he tried to convince people of the truthfulness of his claims. It was even more fun to watch his reaction when they stopped refilling the tank. (laughs) The poor fellow couldn't figure out what had happened to his car. (laughs) Well, today our lesson starts with Paul talking about boasting. You know, there's bad type of boasting, but there's also good type of boasting. James 4.16 says, as it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. But Psalms 34, 2 says, my soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Psalm 44, 8 says, in God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. Selah. So, boasting about yourself or human accomplishments is usually evil. But boasting about the Lord and what he's doing in the church is a good thing. As long as God is the one who gets the glory, then your boasting about him is not in vain. Verse 1, there's no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you in Acacia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to, to action. 
but I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangement, arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Paul's talking about the collection of money by the church at Corinth to be taken to Jerusalem to the elders so that they could distribute it as needs arose for the church, both Jew and Gentile. I think that Paul wanted to prove to the Jews that the Gentile church would give generously to the cause of Christ wherever that was taking place. This is always a good practice for churches. As I stated before, a strong church will look to support the work of the Lord beyond its four walls. Paul wants them to take up their collections before the brethren from Macedonia even arrived, uh, uh, that there would be no pressure to give so that the gifts would be spontaneous and given with a cheerful spirit. And I believe that's a good practice for today. I often speak at a church uh, and they do take up a love, love offering for me, but they've already written a check to me before they even take up that offering. That to me shows their commitment to support mission work and speakers who come to their church. I think it's a good idea to plan ahead so that there's no pressure put on people to give. People should give because of their own convictions, not because someone has told them to, or they give because a speaker or a plea for money stirred up their emotions. Paul also wanted the Corinthian church to be able to say that their gift was from their heart instead of waiting for the Macedonians to get there. Then it would look like a gift that was, co that, that, that was coerced. Instead, they should have the gift ready in advance so that there would be no question about their motive for giving. His next topic is about sowing generously. Verse six, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So the basic principle of giving is that you reap what you sow. Now, this doesn't mean that if you give $100, you'll get $100 back. 
you may get some other blessing from the Lord or simply the joy of having given. God has many ways of blessing, but this doesn't take away from the biblical principle of sowing. Hosea 10, 12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Psalms 126.5, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Galatians 6, 8 through 9, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap an, a harvest if we don't give up. Oh boy, that's an important verse for us today. Job 4.8, as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. So the principle works both ways. If you sow evil, you reap evil. If you sow good in the Lord, you reap good in the Lord. As I've taught before, God wants cheerful givers. Under the new covenant, he wants people to give freely, not out of compulsion. Compulsions means someone either feels direct or indirect pressure to give and is secretly actually unhappy about it. Many people in churches today, uh, you know, uh, are secretly unhappy about giving because their leaders have taken the principle of giving tithes and laid it on their congregations as a guilt trip. You know, it's fine to decide to tithe, but it's not a mandatory thing in the New Testament. We do not see that command given in the New Testament. Instead, we see the principle of the cheerful giver. You know, there were two churches. One said they had a vision from God and built a huge church facility. I won't go into the details, but you know what? They went into terrific debt. And the pastor began a series of messages on tithing to try to get more money in. I've seen this happen so many times. That church is deeply in debt today. A second church, actually in the same denomination, had to move and build a brand new building. But instead, the pastor simply reminded the church members of the need for money and where they were at financially. He did no message on giving or tithing since he doesn't believe that tithing is a New Testament command. Well, the money took longer to come in, but it eventually did. And that church is not in huge debt and they continue to add on as the Lord provides. Which church do you think went about collecting money in the right way? God is able to provide all the needs of any church or individual Christian. When we're working for the Lord, obeying his will and his word, God will provide for our needs. He may not provide everything we want, but he will provide our needs. God has always provided for our needs as a family. I can testify to this countless times. And we've been in the Lord's work, even though sometimes we are living in a state of poverty, basically. 
but God always provides and will continue to provide for his children. God also enlarges the harvest for those who plant according to his will. This doesn't mean that just because a church is big, it's doing the Lord's will. The harvest is talking about people who commit to the Lord because they've heard and understood the gospel. You know, a lot of people can build large congregations and churches by virtue of their personalities or oratory. But actually, that means nothing in the harvest of the Lord. God sees true results. There are many big, huge churches today that are not obeying the word of God. We were just talking about that. Thus, the Lord is not blessing them. There are apparent blessings are the blessings of the wicked. Solomon wondered that sometimes the wicked prosper more than the righteous, uh, while the righteous perish. But the righteous never truly perish, do they? They have eternal life. Thus, for them to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The wicked may have earthly riches, but that will all be lost in the judgment. The blessings of the harvest go to those who obey the Lord and his word, not the false teachers in the large groups of followers. You know, someday we will see the true picture of the harvest, and many will be amazed. Now, if the Lord gives you or your church money, it's so that you can be generous to others with it. The thing that always amazes me about mission work, for instance, is that most of the supporters of missionaries today are usually missionaries themselves. <laughs> I never could figure that out. But somehow that money gets multiplied. You know, just like the story of the oil in Elisha's day, it seems to increase and never run out while paying the bills of those who are in ministry. 2 Kings 4, 1-7, the wife of a man from the company of prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me what, I, tell me what you have in your house. Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elizabeth, uh, Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars. And as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and kept pouring. When all the jars were filled, full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. <laughs> An amazing thing, isn't it? This miracle of God is what we might call the Elisha principle. It's what Paul is talking about. God gives so that we can give to others out of our own abundance and help, make, help them make it financially, especially those in the Lord's work. Somehow God multiplies what seems 
like nowhere near enough in order that we might not only share with others, but that thanksgiving will be given to the Lord, praising him for his faithfulness. Verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to the Lord. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, we don't know what happens when we help God's people financially. For sure, we'll be the cause of many thanks to God. We have a wonderful opportunity to make others praise God for our obedience to the Lord and the gospel. We can cause others to be a tighter unity by sharing. They will, in turn, pray for us and uphold us in our time of need. Most of all, we will cause others to thank God for the greatest gift of all, that of his son and the salvation we have because he gave us the gift that we when, when uh, that gift when we least deserved it the indescribable gift the couple stories i wanted to leave with you this one's called the old lady 20 years ago i drove a cab for a living when i arrived at 2:30 a.m. the building was dark except for a single light in a ground floor window. Under these circumstances, many drivers would just honk once or twice, wait a minute, and then drive away. But I had seen too many impoverished people who depended on taxis as their only means of transportation. Unless a situation smelled of danger, I always went to the door. This passenger might be someone who needs my assistance, I reasoned to myself. So I walked to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail, elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. <clears throat> After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 80s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of, the, out of a 1940s movie. By her side <clears throat> was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assess, assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked uh, slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got to the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through downtown? Well, it's not the shortest way, I, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. 
I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She, so, she showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had done dancing as a, gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. As the first hint of the sun was crossing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held onto me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly, lost in thought. For, for the rest of that day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was in, impatient at the end of his shift? What if I had refused to take the run or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think of our uh, that our lives revolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully lap, uh, wrapped in what others may consider a small one. People may not remember exactly what you did or what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. The next story is the unspeakable gift. Long ago, there ruled in Persia a wise and good king. He loved his people. He wanted to know how they lived. He wanted to know about their hardships. Often he dressed in the clothes of a working man or a beggar and went to the homes of the poor. No one whom he visited thought that he was their ruler. One time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate the coarse food the man ate. He spoke cheerfully kind words to him. Then he left. Later, he visited the poor man again and disclosed his identity by saying, I am your king. The king thought the man would sure, surely ask for some gift 
or favor, but he didn't. Instead, he said, you left your palace in your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, you've given your rich gifts. To me, you've given yourself. The King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave himself to you and me. The Bible calls him the unspeakable gift. You know, who cannot, who cannot estimate the value of God's gift when he gave to the world his only begotten son? It's something unspeakable and incomprehensible. It passes man's understanding. Two things there are which man has no arithmetic to reckon and no line to measure. One of these things is the extent that man's loss, who of that man's loss who loses his soul. The other is the extent of God's gift when he gave Christ to sinners. Sin must indeed be exceeding sinful when the father must need give his only son to be the sinner's friend. Hi, this is Sandy Simpson again. Thank you for listening to one of our podcasts. You can come to my website, Apologetics Coordination Team at DeceptionInTheChurch.com or go to our YouTube site called Act TV and check out our DVDs and books, etc. Thank you so much for checking us out.